John 20. Jesus Christ told His disciples in John 16.16, A little while and ye shall not see Me, and again a little while and ye shall see Me, because I go to the Father. He would go on to say in verse 20 of John 16, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. Ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. As we sang those songs in regard to the resurrection just a few moments ago, it cannot be doubted or overlooked that the resurrection is for us a point of joy. It is for us a point of great gladness. However, as we left the disciples in John 19, we left them in great sorrow. Their Lord and Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, is dead. Not just dead, but buried. Some of them watched Him die. John watched Him die. The Marys watched Him die. Others of them fled. One utterly denied Jesus Christ and ran out weeping. One betrayed Jesus Christ into the hand of sinners, went out into a field and killed himself. As we step into John 20, we step into a time of confusion. We step into a time of hopelessness. We step into a time of sorrow, of pain, of mourning, of fear, as we'll see in just a few moments in the text. But Jesus had told them in John 16, verse 20, You shall be sorrowful. But, He said, Your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And today we get to see that day dawn. Today we get to see the sorrow turned to joy. Today we begin to see the foundations upon which the faith that you and I have become so devoted to, that faith that has become not just our hope, but our very life, we get to see the foundations upon which it rests. The foundations of our hope. The foundations of our service. The foundations of our perseverance unto sanctification. So consider with me this evening the hope of your salvation that is founded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look with me in John 20, beginning in verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple came and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin 
that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Verse, or as we start this evening, the first element that we're going to see is that as we consider the hope of our salvation in verses 1 through 10, the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. Verse 1 tells us Mary Magdalene approached the grave on the first day of the week. The synoptics reveal that there was another woman there as well. Jesus Christ died on Friday at 3 p.m., the ninth hour of the day. Saturday was the Sabbath in which Jesus lay in the sepulcher. Now, there are many theories as to where Jesus Christ was during the time that He lay in the tomb. Psalm 16, verse 10 tells us in the prophecy of Jesus Christ, I will not leave my soul in hell. Peter quoted this verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 27, and in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, in direct reference to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we see Psalm 16, verse 10, this idea of the Messiah's soul in hell. What does, what does that mean? What are we supposed to take from that? What's the concept there? Well, in the Greek, there are three words which the King James Version translates hell. There are three distinct words. They mean three distinct things. However, the King James translators translated them all with the word hell. This can be a little bit confusing for us because of that fact that there are three distinct words. So let's talk about them a little bit this evening. The first word we see in the New Testament translated hell is the word Gehenna or Gehenna, which was also the name for the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place just outside the gates of Israel. It was a place of refuge. It was a place of wickedness. It was a place that had become the garbage dump in Jerusalem. Excuse me, did I say Israel? I meant Jerusalem if I said Israel. Just outside the city of Jerusalem. It was their garbage dump. Well before that, in the Old Testament... The Valley of Hinnom had been a place where terribly wicked things had happened. It was a place where um, the children were sacrificed unto Molech and the fires. A place that was, has always been referred to as a place of burning. But now it was a garbage dump. It was also used in the, in the Jewish culture, however, to describe a place of torment for the dead in eternal flame. This is the hell that Jesus Christ spoke of in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 49. He spoke of it in that passage as the place where the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. We would understand Jesus' description of Gehenna to correspond with our understanding of the lake of fire, which will be populated following the great white throne of judgment at the end of the millennium. That would be this place known as Gehenna, King James translators oftentimes use the word hell. The second word in the King James, that the, in the New Testament, that the translators translated hell, is the word Hades. The word Hades. Now, Hades was the name of the Greek god of the lower regions. He had thus become synonymous with those lower regions. Synonymous in the Greek language with the realm of the dead. The grave. It was even a generalized word for death. Hades was somewhat of a neutral term. It was not always used to speak of that which was negative, as we would think of hell today. However, at the same time, when it's used in the New Testament, it is used almost 
exclusively, and we would say very heavily it leans toward a negative sense when the Scriptures speak of the place known as Hades. Hades corresponds to the Hebrew word Sheol. It was used to describe a place for the wicked. As in Psalm 9.17 which says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, this place Sheol, and all the nations that forget God. But, it was also a place described in a very neutral sense in the Scriptures. In Genesis 37, when Jacob lost his son Joseph, Joseph had been sold into Egypt, we didn't, Jacob didn't know that. He thought his son was dead. He described his grief as continuing until the day that he goes to Sheol. Until the day that he goes to his death. Now this implication, this use of the word continues throughout the Old Testament. So because we see that, we recognize that this word Sheol cannot be used only in a negative sense. It was not simply used to speak of a place of punishment. It was used to speak of the grave. It was used to speak of death. Whether positive or negative, whether one expected to go to heaven or hell, whether one expected um, the, the positives of, of a life of righteousness or the negatives of a life of sin and wickedness, the, the place was often described as Sheol. The third word in the King James that they translate hell just once is actually a hapax legomena. I've used this word before, but let me remind you again as to what a hapax legomena is. It's a theological term to describe a word that's used only one time in the Bible. Now, oftentimes when we see hapax legomenas, it's because Paul made up a word or something like that. But this is not that case. We see a word translated hell found in 2 Peter 2 verse 4. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says this, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and he continues. And the word there that is translated by the King James translators as hell is the word Tartarus. Now, if you were to punch Tartarus into Google, you would find another Greek mythology. Similar to Hades, Hades was the god of the underworld in Greek mythology and therefore was synonymous with the, the, the grave or the underworld. Tartarus was a region that was supposed to have resided below Hades deeper than Hades. So in the Greek mind, as they were thinking about their mythology, it would have been the realm of the earth. And then underneath the earth, there would have been a realm called Hades, or the grave. And then underneath the grave would have been a deeper realm called Tartarus. And this is, the, this is what Peter states in 2 Peter 2.4 when he says that God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into Tartarus. In the context, Peter is speaking of the place where fallen angels are bound in um, chains awaiting judgment. Now we learn of this place in Luke 8.31. Jesus Christ interacts with a man named the demoniac of Gadara, as we have named him today. And within this man, this demoniac, is a number of angels, or demons, excuse me, who are named legion. They say, we are legion for we are many. They beg Jesus not to send them out of this man into what they termed the deep. 
but rather to allow them to go into a herd of swine. What they feared there is this place called the deep. This place where the demons, where those, the fallen angels, those who followed Satan in his rebellion, are held in chains. Now we know that there are some demons who are allowed to, fro- to roam freely. We know that there are princes that are evil angels assigned to nations. We know that there are demons, fallen angels out there tempting, out there working wickedness in this world. However, there is a large contingency of these fallen angels that are in a place that Revelation calls the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit, the place that Legion did not want to go, the deep, the place that Peter calls in 2 Peter, Tartarus. 1 Peter 3.16 speaks of Christ preaching to the spirits in prison, by which many believe, depending on who you read and who is interpreting it, many believe that Jesus spent those days between His death and His resurrection in Hades, preaching victory to the spirits. Some believe He spent it in Tartarus, preaching victory to those fallen angels. While this is possible, it's not really necessary, as we see that the word Sheol or the word Hades demands, uh, doesn't demand a place of, of punishment for the wicked. It's simply talking of the grave. And so I give all of that as kind of a side note as we begin this account. Where was Jesus Christ in this time? Someone may ask you. We don't really know. Except that 1 Peter 3.16 does say that He preached to the spirits in prison. And really it doesn't matter. But I wanted to give you some context as uh, we're here, lest we overlook it and somebody might ask you or you might wonder at some time. So let's get back to the text. John chapter 20. We walk with Mary Magdalene on the first day of the week and we find the stone of the sepulcher rolled away. Immediately, John tells us Mary ran back to Jerusalem where she found Peter and John and told them that Jesus had been taken away. Well, this startled Peter and John. They ran toward the tomb. John outran Peter. He arrived at the tomb first. John stops at the mouth of the tomb and he kind of peeks in. He notices immediately that the grave clothes were still there, though the body was gone. Okay? Grave clothes there. Body gone. What could this mean? Well, Peter was not as tactful. John's there peeking around the corner looking into the tomb and Peter blows right by him, straight into the tomb. Runs right in there. And John followed and they noticed that the linen clothes as well as the napkin that had been wrapped around Jesus' head were lying in places by themselves. The implication of what uh, this means as we look at verse... Um, 7, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. The implication of that was that the linen clothes were lying, and then the napkin that was around his head was lying separate. The implication was it looked as though nothing had been touched. Whereas if you had thought of perhaps grave robbers, or even those that had no regard for who Jesus Christ was, or or no regard for, for what they were doing, they would have unwrapped him from his grave clothes, And they would have tossed it in a pile, perhaps. Or they would have left them on the floor. They would not have set them out nicely, laying in the exact spot with the proper distance between the body 
and the head. Those sorts of things. That's what John and Peter saw when they went in there. They saw the great course lying almost as if Jesus Christ had just vanished. As opposed to being unwrapped and taken out of His grave clothes. John enters the sepulchre and verse 8 says that when he saw, he believed. We can only speculate as to the fullest extent of John's meaning here. The next verse says, verse 9, For as yet they knew not the Scripture, that He must rise again from the dead. It would seem to imply that John's belief here was somehow tied to the resurrection, though they still had not fully understood the Old Testament prophecies. The word for knowledge there, when it says they knew not the Scripture, is not the typical word speaking of just general knowledge. It's, it's more of the word that it has its roots in the idea of perception. Not just knowing something, but perceiving something, understanding something, getting the full grasp of something. It's a different Greek word than the typical knowledge. And so somehow, this sight that John saw was a large part of helping him believe the resurrection. It's possible that what John is describing here is the same thing that he described in John chapter 2. Would you take a moment and turn back to John 2 with me? John chapter 2, look, at me, look with me in verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, that's speaking to Jesus, What signs showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. So we recall that as Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, They mocked him and said, you said that you could rebuild the temple in three days, but you can't even get yourself off the cross. They were mocking him. They were scorning him. But notice verse 22. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. I believe that what John is describing in John chapter 20, verse 9, is what he was saying here in John chapter 2. As he was writing in John chapter 2, he said, Jesus Christ said these things early in His ministry. Nobody really understood what He was saying. However, when He rose from the dead, the pieces started to fall into place in the disciples' minds and they believed that what He had said, that He would rise again in three days. I believe that that is what John is experiencing right here in John chapter 20, verse 9. As he saw the grave close, he thought about what Jesus Christ said in the, in the temple that day, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And he believed. Now the whole circumstance, however, was still shrouded in mystery. They did not know fully where Jesus was, and so according to verse 10, the disciples went home. They dispersed. They went away to their own home. Now, this would have been their dwelling place. We know that these disciples were from Galilee. So this wasn't home as in them going to Galilee quite yet. They will go to Galilee, but not yet. Uh, this is them going to whatever dwelling place they had in Jerusalem for the time of the, of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. However, well, we'll pick up at that in just a moment. You know, we who know the end of this story know the significance of this moment the significance of Mary approaching the tomb 
far better than the disciples did. For some three years, Jesus' ministry had been one of authority. Men and angels had bowed to His authority. The winds and the waves ceased at His command. Demons bowed before Him. Food was multiplied by prayers of thanksgiving. And now, Mary comes to the tomb early in the morning on the first day of the week. And the stone is rolled away. The tomb was empty. The tomb where Jesus Christ had lay was vacant. If there is ever a sermon where my incapacity to properly explain the magnitude of a moment becomes clear, it's in a sermon where I'm preaching on the resurrection. Paul said it well in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, when he said that death is swallowed up in victory. As he's teaching that great passage of Scripture on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says death is swallowed up in victory. You know, the word victory is beautiful, isn't it? It really is a beautiful word. It speaks of overcoming, of final and complete achievement. Victory is a beautiful word even in the human context. I think about this past weekend. We're we're beginning football season. My Broncos had a good day this past Thursday. It was a good victory. And that word sounded good. The, The Cornhuskers had a good day on Saturday. That was a good, strong victory. That word sounds good. But we think about it in, the, in the, the context of 1 Corinthians 15, in the context of the stone being rolled away, and that word victory takes on such a magnitude, a magnitude beyond that which we could fathom. See, because it's not just the concept of victory, but it's the object of that victory that makes such a difference. This is not just victory over a team. This is not just victory over the Pharisees. This is not just victory over the Roman Empire. This is victory over death. This is victory over the great enemy that was ushered in the day that men fell to sin. So Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The victory is over spiritual death. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, the Scriptures say they died. Spiritually. They died, separated from God. But they also began to die physically. And since that day, death has been the great enemy. Physical death, we can't cheat it. Spiritual death, we can't cheat it. It's there. It's been our great enemy. But this day, the day we're reading about, the day that Mary looked at the tomb and the stone was rolled away, the day that John and Peter looked into the sepulchre and the grave clothes were lying there but it was empty, this was the day of victory. This was the day where the sorrow began to turn into joy, where the mourning began to turn into rejoicing. This was the beginning of something brand new. This was victory. But the story doesn't stop there. In verses 11 through 18, we see not only is the stone rolled away, not only is the tomb empty, but we see that the Savior is indeed alive. It would not be all that significant if the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. And after the disciples did their due diligence and made their inquiries, they found out that they buried Jesus in the back. It would not be that big of a day if they had hunted down the grave robbers and found Jesus' body. But that's not what happened. The disciples went home. 
Scriptures tell us in verse 11 that Mary stood outside the sepulcher weeping. Verse 11, And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one on the, uh, at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou, and whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to have been the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. In her grief, Mary looks into the tomb and as she does so, she sees two angels in white sitting where Jesus had been laid. One was sitting at the head one was sitting at the feet. And they asked her in verse 13, Woman, why weepest thou? Certainly the days of sorrow were there, but today was not a day of sorrow. Today it was a day of rejoicing. Why weepest thou? Far be it for us to understand what Mary was thinking or who she perceived them to be. The Scriptures don't say that she perceived them to be gardeners. They simply say that there were two angels there. Did she see them as angels? What, what did they look like? What was she thinking as she saw them? We don't know. But she answered quite matter-of-factly, didn't she? Well, because they have taken away my Lord and I know not where they have laid Him. She then turned away from the tomb. And in doing so, she saw Jesus standing in front of her. Verse 14 that tells us that she did not recognize Him. This is the same word for no that we saw earlier, that word that speaks of perception, that word that speaks of understanding. It's rooted more in the eyes than it is in the mind. It's the idea of perceiving something properly. So she didn't perceive who it was. And this one asked her a question. Woman, why weepest thou? And then he adds to that, whom seekest thou? Well, she thought he was the gardener. Perhaps he was the one he tended that area. Perhaps he was the one that took Jesus away. Perhaps he was the one that relocated him. Maybe she thought it's after the Sabbath and whoever owns this tomb wants it back. Maybe though we know that we laid him in there for expedience. Maybe um, he's been relocated. And she says, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him and I will take him away. I'll take care of him. Jesus responds with but one word. He says her name. He says Mary. And immediately, the, as if scales had fallen off her eyes, she recognized this is Jesus. And she said unto Him, Rabboni, the Hebrew word, Master. Apparently, she ran to embrace Jesus, for He had to quickly warn her in verse 17 to not touch Him, since He had not yet ascended unto the Father. If you were to look in another translation, the word here, it would have been translated cling to instead of to touch. They imply in this translation that 
Not so much that she could not touch him, but that he didn't want her to, to withstand him or to detain him from ascending up unto the Father. While the Greek word retains this force, if you ever do the study on it, based upon the usage of this Greek word, particularly in the Gospels, it seems likely that the King James translators have the upper hand in, in their translation here that he was forbidding any physical contact here. It wasn't just that he said, don't hinder me or don't keep me back or don't cling to me. It was literally him saying, do not touch me at all because I haven't ascended unto the Father. Jesus states his purpose in appearing was simply so that she would go and tell the brethren that Jesus ascends unto his Father and their Father, his God and their God, that the Savior is alive. Verse 18 tells us Mary did exactly that. She told them that she had seen the risen Lord and told them that He had said these things unto her. Now the fullest implications of Jesus' resurrection have not yet been presented in the text. We'll see that next week as we look at verses 19-31 through as we look at John 21 in in the week following. And yet to we who have the Scriptures in their fullest extent the completed revelation of God's Word, not just inspired, but preserved for us, the implications become very clear. Let me read you some passages from Scripture as we close this evening that will help us understand the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12 say this. Go ahead and turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. We'll turn to these. Beginning in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 1. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. The implication of the resurrection is that for all eternity we have obtained an inheritance whereby we would be brought together to the glory of Christ. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible, and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that's the resurrection, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death 
to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. The implications of the resurrection, the firstborn of the dead, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, all that was accomplished. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, look with me at verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Jesus Christ's resurrection is the very foundation for our resurrection, is the very foundation of our hope. One more passage. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1. You've memorized it. Maybe you can just quote it from memory as I read it. 1 Peter 1. And look with me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. The event that transpired in John 20, verses 1 through 17, 1 through 18. The event that transpired on that day What we just read is the eyewitness account of the very hope of your faith. Because Christ rose, you can too. Because Christ saw victory over death, you will too. Because Christ was resurrected from the grave, you have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. As I read each of these passages of Scripture, the thing that they had in common was that their intended audience was supposed to be those who are saved. See, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians church and the Colossians church and to the Corinthian church and as Peter wrote to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, he was writing to believers. They were writing to believers. And so as we look at the implication of the resurrection, the implication of the resurrection certainly is important to the unbelievers. They need to understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. But the resurrection's power and its implications and the strength and the happiness and the joy is found to the believer. What does it mean to be saved? To be saved means that you have recognized the reality of your sin and the impossibility of paying for that sin through your actions. It means that you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, accepting by faith that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin upon the cross, and accepting by faith that the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees you eternal life in heaven. As we talked about this morning, humbling ourselves before God. And it is only within this context of salvation that we also have hope. Without salvation, the hope of the resurrection is non-existent. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Without salvation, the hope of the resurrection is non-existent. 
Resurrection Sunday comes about once a year. Easter. As we think about Easter, you see the flags and the banners. He is risen. It's true. He is risen. Churches across this country rejoice in the resurrected Savior. But you know, the unbelieving world has no reason to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope, the victory, the joy of the resurrection is to those who have accepted Christ alone. The hope that a believer has in that which is to come, however, is not an empty hope which has no bearing on today. Peter called it in 1 Peter 1 verse 3 a lively hope. A future hope with present implications. Peter would go on to describe those implications in verses 14 through 16. What are the implications for you as a believer in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, we talked this evening about the hope, the joy, the first fruits. But I'd like to point to you in 1 Peter 1 to one more implication of the resurrection. As Peter teaches of this lively hope, the end of our faith being the salvation of our souls, in verses 14 through 16, he says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. As we step out of our sermon this evening and we consider what Mary found that day, the empty tomb. As we step out of this passage of Scripture and we consider Jesus Christ standing before Mary alive, I'd like us to take away three things. The first thing I'd like us to take away is to remember the price that was paid. Yes, Jesus is alive, but never forget the price. Second, the hope, the future in heaven. We've talked about that extensively. But third and finally, let's not stop at just remembering our hope. Let's not allow the resurrection of Jesus Christ simply to give us that hope and that joy. Let's remember 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's remember that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of that resurrection should place upon us the recognition of responsibility a responsibility that we have upon us today to live in a way that pleases God, that is in obedience unto His revealed Word, that motivates us today to do what we ought, to be sanctified unto God, knowing what He has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, knowing what Jesus Christ did when He rose from the grave and the victory that we have waiting for us one day, and therefore sanctifying ourselves unto God today. Let's carry those elements away with us as we go this week.